Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture comes from John chapter 3, verses 23 through 30. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the TV show The Office, paper salesman Stanley Hudson suffered a heart episode that threw the Scranton branch of Dunder Mifflin into a panic and provided us with one of the lines in the show that I think perfectly sums up how I've experienced so much of 2020. Regional manager Michael Scott was recounting the situation to the documentary crew and confessed, we found ourselves on the less prepared side of things when Stanley's heart went berserk, and I knew exactly what to do. But in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. This chapter of John is a great exercise in contrast between people who had some idea what to do with this whole Jesus thing that's going on and others who know exactly what's going on and people who had no idea what to do with Jesus. It didn't have to do with upbringing or education of the people, I don't think. See, the chapter starts off with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he had some idea of what was going on with Jesus. He noticed that Jesus taught with authority and did things that would be impossible apart from the power of God. He sought Jesus out to get answers for questions that he had, but he ended up getting answers to questions that he didn't even know to ask. He was figuring some things out. Nicodemus wanted to know more about Jesus. Jesus allowed Nick to get closer He still wasn't putting all the pieces together, and Jesus called him out when Nicodemus was not picking up on an illustration. He said, you're in charge of teaching people about this stuff, and yet you don't seem to get it yourself. There are plenty of times when I've felt that way as somebody who tries to teach about God while I'm still continuing to learn and understand who God is better and better. Still, when we approach Jesus to know who he is, he draws us closer to himself. Then there are the people in the chapter who just don't get it. The fact that Nicodemus has to come to Jesus at night indicates in part that Nick's friends see Jesus as some sort of quarrelsome or troublesome character, and so he's got to creep a little bit. We're going to dig into some of John's disciples who didn't seem to get what was going on either. They were fiercely loyal to their guy, but when his mission met its purpose, they didn't know how to shift course. And then there's John the Baptist himself, Jesus' cousin, He had known perhaps since before he was born what he was going to do with this whole Jesus event. 
We read how the greeting of Jesus' mother Mary made John do a little dance or leap in his mother Elizabeth's womb. I have no idea what that feels like, but John's mother seemed to think it was significant that John knew exactly who he was encountering even before birth. John came from a priestly family line, and instead of serving the temple in Jerusalem, he became a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And when John's Lord showed up to be baptized, it's exactly what he did. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He readily proclaimed that he wasn't the guy in the spotlight, no matter how much notoriety he had been receiving. He was the guy who would shine the spotlight. He wasn't the star, but he would make sure that people were as ready as possible when it came time for that star to shine. And once he participated in the important part of initiating Jesus' public ministry through baptism, John just kept doing what he was doing. There was no reason to stop offering the baptism of water for repentance and cleansing. And as we'll see, he just used that as an opportunity to keep directing the spotlight that was his to shine. And that takes us up to our first lesson this morning. Even if you're in a desert, God can make sure there's plenty of water. Even if you are in a desert, God can make sure there's plenty of water. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there, and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. After a tornado tore through Joplin, Missouri in May of 2011, I traveled like some of you to that part of the area for cleanup and restoration. It was the worst path of destruction I have ever seen. I was in New Orleans before and after Katrina, but I didn't get close enough to the utter devastation. I saw Liberia's infrastructure in tatters after long civil war, but they were in the process of rebuilding. I saw Joplin as soon as help could start coming in from outside of the community for demolition and cleanup. And it was shocking. It was horrifying. During my second trip, we had a guy with us who had mission trip boots. You probably know the kind I'm talking about, the kind that you have worn out for other casual purposes, but they are going to hold up for mission trips, and maybe they've been to a number of different locations with you. And so while this gentleman was swinging a sledgehammer to break up some construction block, the sole on his boot just quit. It just absolutely gave out on him, kaput. We tried to patch it together with some duct tape, and that held on for a few minutes, but you knew it was not going to last. It was early in our trip, and this guy didn't want to be useless for the rest of the day, and so he was wondering out loud how he was going to be able to keep on working. And around that moment, as someone cleared away some debris, something fairly amazing happened. Hey, Brian, what size shoe do you wear? Thirteen. Which one of yours is broken? The right. Does it look like this one would fit? Right in the debris, without a match, was the exact size shoe for the exact correct foot that had just been cleared as we were sorting through tornado damage. Now I'll give you this, it wasn't a great shoe in brand new condition, but it was enough of a shoe in good enough condition to get Brian through until we went to lunch as we accepted the invitation to a church that was giving out cost-free meals to those who were helping with the restoration. As we shared the story, one of the pastors at the church said, hang on a second, and he comes back with a box of brand new size 13 work boots in it. He told us they got so many donations following the storm, and the demand for size 13 work boots had not been very high. He figured he would honor the donor by giving these boots to someone who was at least assisting with the cleanup. 
Now, there was no logical reason that there should have been a shoe in that pile at that time. I don't know how to explain that except for God. There was no reason for the pastor of a very busy church at that time to hear the story of what was happening to Brian that day, except God made that way. There was a need, there was a faithful response, and God moved to make sure that the right things were right where they needed to be. And I don't think I'll ever forget that. This passage talks about John, talking about John, gives us a chance to enter into some of the possible anxieties that John and his followers would experience. It's talking about John baptizing in the wilderness area of Anan near Salim. Wilderness in the Bible often means desert. Even in the middle of the desert, there was this spring where water was plentiful. There's this contrast where the gospel's author gives us a glimpse at a reason why there should be scarcity, but then describes why there's not. We're basically told, yes, this is in the desert, but don't worry. God makes certain that there's plenty of water for what John is doing. These past several months since March may have drawn our attention to what's missing in our lives. Our anxieties may have been focused on the scarcity of the situation and what we've been forced to do without. We've missed out on travels and workplaces and family time and funerals and worship services together, and the list goes on. The situation can look an awful lot like a desert if we're seeing all these things through a lens of scarcity. But here's the thing. Has God made certain that there is enough water? I know that there are things that we've gone without, and I'm not trying to downplay the hurts of that. But I also don't want us to miss the oasis. In the middle of this desert, how has God made certain that you have what you need when you've needed it? How has Jesus Christ made sure that when you needed food or toilet paper or medicine or a friend, how has God provided? This isn't the spiritual equivalent of a rainforest that we've been living in, but I'd say it is an oasis. Just as God placed a spring in the midst of the Jordan Valley to make sure that there was water for baptism, God can make sure that there is a spring in your life as well, so you can faithfully live into the Holy Spirit's calling upon you. Our second lesson this morning is this. Comparison is a thief of joy. Comparison is a thief of joy. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. I wish it were someone other than Louis C.K. who I could credit for this, but there was a line in his TV show where his daughter was complaining about fairness. She didn't get as much of something as her sister did, and it wasn't fair. And he responded, The only time you should look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. You don't look in your neighbor's bowl to see if you have as much as them. So much of social media is the antithesis of this concept. So much of our scrolling is just a comparison trap. The person has a more fabulous life than I do. This person has a better vacation. This person has a nicer car. This person has more talented kids. This person has healthier parents. This person looks nicer. This person has better attendance at their church. And for many of us, we don't discover those things to celebrate the good fortune of our neighbors. More often, it causes us to think that we are somehow inadequate, missing out, and not measuring up. 
Social media is usually everyone putting their very best foot forward, and the less than helpful voice inside of us ends up comparing other people's highlight reels to our own blooper reels. We put their very best up against our very worst, and it doesn't in any way make us feel or become better. The comparison trap of social media can steal our joy, and there's some fairly decent research to back that up. John's disciples didn't have Instagram, but they still got caught up in the trappings of comparison. John baptized this Jesus fella and gave him an endorsement. And now instead of coming to John to have their spiritual needs met, they're going to this other guy instead. These disciples were defensive of their rabbi. I bet they were talking John up like, listen, man, this guy has nothing on you. You're a snappy dresser. You're a fiery preacher. You kind of own this whole desert ministry thing. The crowds will come back. And that's the problem, at least part of the problem, with comparison when it competes with calling. John wanted people to discover Jesus. As a cousin, as a friend, as a child of God, John wanted people to discover Jesus. That was his purpose. And John could fulfill his purpose by pointing people to Jesus, but the crowds were going to thin. The work was going to change. If John didn't have spiritual maturity, he may have seen this ministry of Jesus as a threat, much like the Pharisees did. If John didn't have a clear sense of calling, he might have seen Jesus' ministry as an affront to his. If John was a more insecure person, he might have seen Jesus' ministry as competition. But John was rooted in his relationship with his heavenly Father, who introduces Jesus to the world. He wouldn't be threatened. He was certainly not going to be offended. And he was not about to bother with competition. Again, this is a situation where it seems like there's not going to be enough of something. It doesn't seem like there would be enough water in the desert, yet there was plenty of water. It doesn't seem like there would be enough converts once Jesus started doing his ministry. But this passage tells us that Jesus was getting more, but John wasn't not serving. He was still serving in his ministry. John's disciples were afraid that there weren't enough people for both John and Jesus to be in ministry at the same time. And I bet they wished Jesus would stop so their guy could be on top again. Like a lot of others would, they were missing the point of Jesus and the purpose of the rabbi's teaching. They were too wrapped up in their comparisons. Think about it. They were getting Jesus wrong because their comparisons led to jealousy. How often have our comparisons caused us to miss Jesus? How often have we been jealous of a friend's nice vacation and maybe we missed an opportunity that God placed in our hearts in our efforts to fall into the comparison trap? How often have we been enticed by a neighbor's new technology or new toy or something and we missed a chance to help a family that God brought to our attention because the comparison trap was so strong? Or maybe we've been so determined to get a car as nice as the ones in our neighbor's garages, but that distracted us from a chance to notice that maybe those same neighbors are not holding up so well during a pandemic and the comparison trap prevented us from just checking on them and making sure they're okay. When we grow in spiritual maturity, though, comparison is not a, th a threat. When God gives you a clear sense of calling, others, other people's success or failure doesn't pull you from your purpose. When we know who we are in Jesus Christ, everyone else serving in his name becomes a sibling. We are the same blood, the same spirit, 
And the only people we need to compare ourselves against are first, Jesus Christ, to keep our eyes on our ultimate goal, and second, the person you were yesterday to see how you've grown. That's it. But when we know who we are in Jesus Christ, we can look into our neighbor's bowl just to make sure they've got enough. And we can know that maybe God has equipped us to do something about it. We can look at what God is doing in the lives of our friends and neighbors and be glad because we aren't worried about whether we are loved, significant, or blessed enough. We can live satisfied in the calling that God has placed on our lives and encouraging for the calling God has placed on others, on our friends and on our neighbors. And when our hearts and spirits are tempted to be discontent, we get to remember, this is our third lesson, joy is not the same as success and fame. Joy is not the same as success and fame. John replied to his disciples, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. The section here highlights the scarcity of the spotlight. There isn't enough notoriety to go around. John was basically the Las Vegas of repentance. People would travel into the desert for miles and miles to wash their sins away, and what was washed in the water stays in the water. You get the picture. Scripture tells us that the people of Jerusalem, which was the religious hub of Judaism, and all the people of Judea came out to see this man. He was a celebrity. John was an influencer. And then all of a sudden, his star begins to dim. We read sometimes that when people are starting to fade from fame, there are some desperate pleas for attention as celebrities try and prove the adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity. The spotlight is the spotlight. But that's not what John does at all, is it? His goal was never the fame, though he had it. His goal was not to collect disciples, though his were loyal. Those things weren't the goal, but they did help to advance the goal. When Jesus came to receive his baptism, there were crowds. Crowds who heard John declare that instead of water, Jesus came to baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. They heard John proclaim that John himself was unfit to even untie the sandals of Jesus' feet. And when Jesus was baptized, that crowd heard a voice from heaven declare, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him as they witnessed the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. John's notoriety served a purpose, but that purpose wasn't self-serving. John's notoriety paved way for Jesus to gain credibility and recognition quickly as he initiated his public ministry. John did what he was born to do. And in doing that, he wasn't sad. He was grateful. He was happy. His joy had nothing to do with his fame. It was not at all dependent on the world's measure of success. John's joy was dependent on God's satisfaction with his life. And John lived and served courageously selflessly and faithfully. He wanted his disciples and his friends to know that. They need not be sad for him. In fact, he hoped they would share in his joy, even as the sun appeared to be setting on his ministry. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Jesus must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. That's a prayer for all of us, you know. As a pastor, one of the best things I could ever hope for at the end of my life is to be as clear as cellophane. 
That people would be able to look right past me and focus solely on Jesus. Whether they see God's goodness in the good that comes from us or if they see God's grace in the restoration we experience through our faults and failures. That's the task of each of us. To be so wrapped up in Jesus that we become less and less as he becomes greater and greater. That means our joy doesn't come from the spotlight or notoriety. It doesn't come from the world's definition of success, what we amass, the likes clicked on our posts or the credit we get for the good we've done. Those things are good for a release of dopamine and serotonin. It's a temporary injection of happy feelings. But ultimately, our joy has to be found in something more consistent, something foundational, something that does not shift. It's got to be found in Christ. Jesus' love for you does not change. That adventure and wonder of God's purpose for your life will have an eternal impact that goes on into eternal life. The peace and assurance we receive from being attuned to the Holy Spirit living within us reminds us of that reality that we are daughters and sons of the Most High God. And that sees us through the times when the crowds seem fickle and the spotlight fades. The solid rock of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Can he keep our heads up when everything around us seems scarce? Because we've learned by walking with God that our every need will be provided. And when it seems like we've been put out to pasture, we can know that God has still given us the greatest purpose that can be given to a human to make much of Jesus until we run out of breath. There's no purpose on earth more significant And that is how we bring joy into our friendships, too. That peace and joy we experience from a love that does not fade, we make much of Jesus when we share it. May we experience the joy of Jesus becoming greater and greater in each of our lives and through our lives together as a church. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are so grateful as we are often tempted to view things through a lens of scarcity, to believe that there couldn't be enough for what you've called us to, that there simply isn't enough water in this desert to do what you have called forth from us. We read this story of John's faithfulness, surrounded by what would seem to be scarcity, and we find the abundance of your provision. God, in times when we are tempted to pursue happiness based on the definitions that the world has handed to us, we find that those who cash really big checks can still do so with a frown. Lord, we are reminded that our significance, our joy is found in you. In knowing who we are in you. In knowing the steadfast nature of your love. Of having a hold on our lives that will not end. Even as our journey in this world would be completed, our, our life is just beginning in the world that is to come. God, in all these things, we thank you. You are generous. You are gracious. You are so kind to us. Lord, help us to live our lives in joyful gratitude. We thank you and praise you for all this. In the powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.